So in our confession study this morning, as we read the paragraph number two of chapter 15 of Repentance Unto Life, this morning we want to deal with the not only the warning, but the encouragement for believers regarding their falling into sin after their conversion. Of course, we understand that by sinners, uh, we all needed to be saved by the glorious grace of God. And so it is by His grace alone that we claim our salvation. It is by repentance unto life and salvation that we know uh, that that conversion uh, was certainly consummated. But where we see in paragraph number two, uh, we see here that what did the confession writers have in mind with regard to this concept or this principle of falling into sin after conversion. Now, of course, what they did not have in mind was that this was something that was going to happen as a certainty, uh, nor did they say that this was something that happens immediately, but it does tell us that there was an indication or that the confession writers had in mind principles in Scripture that tell us that man may certainly fall into uh, various sins. Sometimes he or she may fall into sin uh, that is quite grievous. Uh, Oftentimes we have made the mistake throughout the years of assuming that our salvation would indicate that we would never ever sin again. Sadly, some religions, denominations have taught that, and of course that would not be the biblical position. However, I do believe that the authors of the Confession probably had in mind at least two biblical examples of individuals who we are certain of their conversion, we're certain that they were uh, in the faith, if you will. But those two main people that I believe they had in mind was David and Peter. Uh, One an Old Testament example and one a New Testament example. Uh, These are two people that we recognize today uh, as people who walked with God, who believed God. Uh, We would certainly uh, say we believe that they are in glory today, no question about that. But their life was marked by moments of falling into grievous sin. Uh, If if they were not exempt from it, certainly uh, we cannot be either. Psalm 51, of course, is known as David's Confession. And he confessed his sin. Uh, Specifically, that sin was the sin with Bathsheba. And, of course, the two notations there in paragraph 2 will deal with Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20 in a moment. But one of the notated footnotes, scripture notes, is Luke 22, verses 31 through 32. So if you'd like to turn there, uh, this is the uh, example of Peter. Uh, We're going to move back and forth between David and Peter. Uh, But I want you to see the words that were given here about what the Lord said to Peter about what would happen and then see that it did in fact take place. Luke 22, verse 31, it says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee, both into prison and to death. 
So this was the indication that the Lord told Peter that Satan desires to sift you. We get the glorious promise that Jesus tells Peter, but I have prayed for you, which is a great assurance. It's a great understanding to know uh, that the Lord is praying. And of course, Peter, uh, in his uh, very forthright manner, uh, declared his allegiance, declared his love for the Lord immediately and said, Lord, almost as if to say, don't worry about me. I'm already ready to go with you, whether that's prison or whether that's death. Uh, you can almost hear Peter declaring his vow of loyalty to Christ. Uh, probably all of us at one time or another uh, made some sort of vow to Christ that we would never, ever, ever turn away from him, nor we would ever walk without him. Yet, it's possible that in your walk as a Christian, your walk as a believer, you've had moments or maybe extended periods of time where you have fell into deep sin. Peter, often we don't recognize the fact that Peter's denial of Christ three times was in fact a falling into grievous sin. Now Peter, when he proclaimed that, we read on into the, into the rest of this passage, and you'll notice what he says here. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. And he said unto them, when I sent you without purse and scrip and shoes, lacked ye anything? And they said nothing. Then said he unto them, but now he that hath a purse, let him take it and likewise his scrip and he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors for the things concerning me have an end. And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said unto them, it is enough. Let's go back and look there at verse 34, what the Lord told Peter in response to Peter's vow of loyalty. He tells Peter that you will deny me three times. Now, oftentimes, maybe we don't take this serious enough and we don't consider the denial of Christ in any way, shape, or form a falling into sin, but I would submit to you that scripturally, a denial of Christ is, in fact, falling into sin. Now, oftentimes, we like to categorize sin as something that we do, it's something that we said, it's an action that we took, but do you realize that to deny the very Christ who saved you uh, is, in fact, a denial uh, of your faith, in a sense. Uh, the Lord, of course, himself said that he who denies me, uh, I will deny them before the Father. So this is a very serious thing. And oftentimes, and sadly, I've probably been guilty of this, of making a bit of light about Peter's uh, uh, forthrightness about this and how we've compared him to that's how we are. He's, Peter's uh, always acting impulsively. But a denial of Christ may not seem on the same level as David's sin with Bathsheba. Most of us in our humanity probably say, if I'm going to compare sin with sin, uh, certainly David's must have been worse because David uh, committed adultery and he also had Bathsheba's husband killed. I mean, come on, that's got to be the worst of the two. Yet in regard, with regard to falling into sin, both of these men were equally guilty of it. So what we have happen, happening here is we see specifically with Peter, he denies the Lord Jesus Christ three times, even at one point with cursing. 
But later on, we know he was pierced to the soul by Christ looking at him. And Christ looked to him, we see Peter respond by weeping bitterly in what's referred and pointed to as true repentance. Now you're still there in Luke 22, drop down to verse 54 and let's see the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy regarding Peter. It says there in verse 54, "Then Then took they him and led him and brought him into the high priest's house, and Peter followed afar off. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall and were set down together, Peter sat down among them. But a certain maid beheld him as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him and said, This man was also with him. And he denied him, saying, Woman, I know him not. I want you to make note of this. He doesn't just deny the statement. What does your Bible say? He denied him. He's no, it's not the denial of the person because the person in this context was a maid. The him was not a reference to the maid. This was a reference to a denial of Christ himself. Now, this is not just Peter saying, hey, I was never with him because what was the accusation that the maid made? <laughs> she said he was with him. Peter didn't respond by saying, I wasn't with him. He denied him. I think there's something to be said there. Woman, I know him not. And after a little while, another saw him and said, Thou art also of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. And about the space of one hour after another, confidently affirmed, saying, Of a truth, this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter said, Man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately while he yet spake, the cock crew. And the Lord turned... Now, this is, this is a powerful verse. The Lord turned and looked upon Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord. How he, that's Peter, said unto him, Believe, or before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter, by the Lord's glaring look at him, goes out and weeps bitterly. He remembered what he had vowed, and he remembers now his own sin. He remembers what he, in fact, had done. And so we see Peter weeping in repentance. And we also read in John 13 and John 18, and then uh, later on uh, in John 21, how that Peter ultimately was restored. And later on, we know that after our Lord goes to the cross and dies and is buried and raises again and ascends back to the Father. Ultimately, Peter is martyred and he is, by tradition, is crucified upside down because he did not believe he was worthy to be crucified in the same manner in which his Lord was. Something happened to Peter. Now, sometimes we may say that, well, that just doesn't seem like that really would be falling into sin. If I just deny the Lord and protect my skin? Is that really falling into deep sin? We're reminded here, not only by Peter, but we're reminded by Peter and David's sin, that even the quote-unquote best of men are simply men at best. In other words, the best of us is just simply a human. The best of us is no better than the person you're seated next to. Uh, There is no one in this room that can claim religious 
highness that can say, I am the pinnacle of which you are to ascend to. And if you ascend to this, uh, then there's a guarantee you will never, ever, ever fall into grievous sin. Now remember, when we introduced these first two paragraphs last week, we mentioned to you that paragraph one and paragraph two are what's referred to as special cases. Uh, these are things that are not guaranteed to happen, but they are things that are quite possibly uh, set before every believer. Every person sins, every person will sin, and they will continue to sin. Now, one of the other footnotes there in the confession is Ecclesiastes 7.20. So if you'd like to turn there, we'll read this verse. And this will show us exactly uh, what is being said here. Of course, we know Ecclesiastes penned by Solomon, the preacher, who uh, went on a quest to find the meaning of life, if you will. And he comes to one of these many conclusions. And Ecclesiastes 7, let's look at verse 19. Wisdom strengtheneth the wise more than ten mighty men which are in the city. For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. There is not a just man. Now notice he prefaces that by saying, Wisdom strengtheneth the wise. It would be wise for us to understand this morning that there is none that will go without sinning. Uh, it, is, it is the pinnacle of heresy to tell someone or for someone to proclaim, I will never sin again. However, what can be exempted is that this paragraph does not say that every single person after their conversion will fall into a deep, dark, grievous sin. Remember, the confession writers did not want these paragraphs to be used as a license to do what was inevitable. So the principle here is, is that the only man, the only individual who is without sin, of course, is Christ. Paul teaches in Romans 6, verses 11 and verses 17 through 18, that sin is to no longer reign in the believer. Paul does make mention that the power of sin is broken. But he also indicates that sin does remain. Temptation stirs up that sin and breaks forth in our thoughts, in our attitudes, in our words, in our actions. But as the author James writes, it is not God that tempts man to sin. So the temptation is not from God. David and Peter both succumbed to their own temptations and gave in to their own sin. Nobody made them do it. They willfully fell into grievous sin. Though David and Peter were redeemed men. Some will teach they were redeemed after those events, and then after those events they were perfect. I would submit to you that you probably haven't read your Bible because there's other instances of sin in both of these men's life after these pinnacle sin points, if I can use that without being too irreverent. So David and Peter, these were awful sins. There's no question. Adultery and murder, David was guilty of. The denial of the Lord in Jesus Christ in Peter. And so what this paragraph is teaching us is that the principles of repentance are for every true believer with regard to any sin. Now, 
This is not given to us in the confession so that we can relax about the prospect saying, because what does the, what does the paragraph teach us? There's none that doth good. There's none that sins, sins not. The best of men may, through the power and deceitfulness of their corruptions dwelling in them, with the prevalency of temptation, fall into great sins and provocations. God hath, in the covenant of grace, mercifully provided that believers so sinning and falling be renewed through repentance unto salvation. The confession writers nor the Lord would want us saying, because of this wondrous covenant of grace that was made before the foundation of the world, it's okay... If I fall into grievous sin because God will have me back, all I have to do is repent. That would never be the attitude of a true believer who would say, I always have a way back because God said I had a way back. Paul, if he was standing here today, would say, God forbid that that would be our attitude. That our attitude would be one that, hey, we're, we go to a church that has the confession of faith that claims what they believe in. Paragraph 2 today, we found out that, look, I can give myself over to some sin because if I do, God will give me a way back. That would not be the attitude of a true convert. That true convert is going to be broken by the reality and would guard even more strongly against and would look at Peter and David as an example and say, if this can happen to these men, why couldn't it happen to me? And what am I going to do to guard against it? So we understand here that there is this encouragement to the repentant saint. Remember, we talked about last week how repentance is not a one-and-done deal, where we repent once, we're converted, and then we never repent again. A repentant saint or a repentant believer is one who grieves over even the smallest of sins. Uh, there is real no small sin. That, that's not even the right phrase. But all sin grieves the true believer. And sometimes that sin can be truly grievous sin. We learned in chapter 7 of the confession entitled of God's covenant that this is what the, the confession writers were mentioning and making reference to is that God is mercifully provided in the covenant of grace. Remember, mercy was not God's obligation to you. Somehow we've gotten the idea in our man-centered theology that mercy was an obligation that God had to show mercy to anyone. And God didn't have to show mercy to you nor me. If it was an obligation, it would no longer be mercy. And it would mean that we were entitled to it. But God mercifully, in the covenant of grace, it says, provided that believers so sinning. Notice there's an emphasis on believers falling into this sin. Be renewed. How are they renewed? Through repentance unto salvation. So, believers who sin will be renewed through repentance unto salvation. This new covenant that we have in Christ is an everlasting covenant. It is a covenant in which Almighty God puts the fear, the reverence of him into the hearts of his people so that they will not desire nor look for ways to depart from him. I was reading early this morning a verse that so grabbed me today, and I want to share this with you, Jeremiah 32, verse 40. And I, I'm sure that at some point along my life, I've seen this verse. Uh, it may be one of those situations where uh, maybe I didn't pay as close attention to it as I should. 
But Jeremiah 32, really beginning in verse 36, is a reference to a time where the people of God were in need of restoration. And I want you to notice verse 40 when we get there, what God says about this everlasting covenant. It says in verse 36, And now therefore thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city, whereof ye say it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries, whether I have driven them in mine anger and in my fury and in, my great, and in great wrath. And I will bring them again unto this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them. And here it is. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. The very single cause of why I ultimately never, ever, ever, as a true believer, fully depart from God is because he has put the fear of him in my heart. It's not because I've pulled myself up by my bootstraps and say, I'm going to make a vow to stay. He put the fear of God in our hearts that we would not depart from him. That's why I fully believe in the true idea of the perseverance of the saints, that his people will never, ever, ever truly depart from him, but they might fall into times of deep sin. It is very difficult to discern the difference when a professing believer appears to completely turn away from the things of God. But this gives me a promise that if that person has in fact turned in, fallen into deep sin, if the fear of God has been put in their hearts, they will ultimately not fully depart from him. That gives a lot of us hope in this room this morning, I, I would trust, to think about not only ourselves, but to think about others. Notice he says, I'll put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Yea, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. Jeremiah goes on to finish that chapter by talking about all the good things he would bring to his people. I realize the context is primarily geared towards the nation of Israel, but we are all his people. So here you have the Lord himself. We see with Peter, he tells Peter, Peter, I've prayed for you. Now there's no reason in the world for us to think today, if Jesus Christ is our mediator, which we've learned, Jesus Christ is our mediator, that he is in fact praying for us as well. And that there's no doubt in my mind that Satan has desired to sift us as wheat. And he says, my prayer for you is that your, your faith fails not. Now we understand that our Lord, as he prayed for Peter, that his faith would not fail. But notice that even the sinning and falling saint is renewed through repentance unto salvation. That is the only path back. The only path back, the only way back to God is through repentance. There is an encouragement for the believer, of course, who truly repents over sin. But there's also, don't just get caught up in the promise that God, that there's a way back. But there's also a warning in this paragraph and warning throughout Scripture about those who just simply become dull to sin or who fail 
to even attempt to resist sin anymore. If you realize today, folks, we should be resisting sin with all the power that is within us. If something important to you is threatened in the physical realm, you ask many people about this, their family threatened, their personal well-being threatened. You ask them, what would you do to keep that from happening? And they will say things like, I will take any steps necessary to resist that from happening. That's how our attitude towards sin is supposed to be. It's supposed to be that I'm taking every measure and every step I possibly can to resist sin. Not taking the other avenue that says, oh, it's okay, I can be dull to sin because if I'm dull to sin, there's a way back. It, actually, this gets into a really bad habit that we get that we suddenly start becoming dull to sin and we think, well, all I need to do is every Sunday, I just need to make things right with God. And people's entire Christian life is hearing a sermon coming forward, going back to their seat, living, living in sin, coming to church, coming forward, praying again, going back to their seat, going back. It's a, it's a vicious pattern. And we're constantly saying, okay, Lord, I messed up again. The question is, did you do all you could to resist it? If you're honest with yourself and honest with God today, are you doing everything you can to resist sin? Because the reality is, is this falling into sin, and this is where the confession writers write and think about that for a moment, do we really fall into it or do we just not resist it as we should? There's a big difference in falling into something that you could have avoided. It's kind of like walking down a sidewalk or walking along a mountain pass and it says the railing is out. Well, what am I going to do? I don't want to get as close as I can to where the railing was. I want to resist going near it. And if I fall off and they said, well, I, I couldn't help myself. I fell. You shouldn't have been there in the first place. If you're not near the cliff, you won't fall off. Or the people that get so foolish that say, well, if God's not okay with this, then he'll make something happen that'll keep me from doing it. God is not going to operate that way where he is going to pluck you away from sin just because you're testing him. Now, it does say he makes a way of escape. And there's not a single temptation that has befallen any believer that God has not made a way of escape. You did not get snared. You just got too close to the trap. These are scary things because we understand that we can focus on the promise, which is wonderful. If we truly do get into a place in our lives, and I'm not making light of this, there have been people that have gone through deep struggles and trials and heartaches, and it has led, in a sense, to them moving away from God. And we ought to be encouraged today that if a person we know has moved away from God, there's hope for them if they will simply repent and believe again that God will have them and that He's not forsaken them. But don't use that as a license to go do what you want to do for a while because I know God will bring me back. God has provided a way for restoration. Again, remember, God restoring you does not guarantee there are no consequences. The reality of our sin that we fail to take into account when we choose to sin is the consequences that we can't see. What's always been frightening to me is the sin that I have chosen to partake in most of those things did not have an immediate consequence. 
There are things that even this day I've repented of and I've prayerfully gotten things right with God that I'm still reaping the consequences of. Some of these things are 20 and 25 years old. And I'm still seeing the consequences of it. I can't beg God to remove the consequences for my actions. Is God obligated to remove the consequences? No, he's already given me more than I ever deserve. He's already given me eternity for an unworthy, depraved sinner who hasn't earned any right to be there. And yet, consequences are there. David, the great psalm of repentance, did not make David's rest of his life go well. It didn't take away all the issues. He still ran into temptations and he still ran into problems. But a man who, or a woman who goes on in sin without repentance calls into question. I think this is fair, a fair assessment. The person who clearly goes and has no desire to repent, a man who just goes in sin without any repentance, really begins to call into question his or her profession. I would warn us against putting a mark in the sand of something that happened in the past as the guarantee of where we stand today. A lot of people are saying, well, I made a decision 25 years ago. I'm gonna say this with as much grace and as much compassion as I can. That's not what's holding you. Your decision is not what's holding you. And if that's all you have, is I made a profession one year ago, two years ago, 25 years ago. Your profession, just like we said, repentance is not a work. It's a gift of God. It doesn't matter what you've been in the past. It doesn't matter what you said in the past. The mark of a true saint when they fall into sin is that there will be a process where they will repent and be renewed. There's an ongoing repentance for sin in the true believer. A few hours into this day, I already have things I need to repent of. I already have things. So what do we do? Daily repentance. Not to you, not even to my spouse, unless I've wronged them, but my confession, my repentance is made unto the Lord. Then and only then can we have confidence of God's favor. 1 John 1, 9 talks about he who has no sin is a what? Is a liar. It's a frightening thing to hear somebody say, I'm without sin. To say you're without sin is to fall into deep sin. It's on the same level as denying Christ to say I have no sin. Here's what he says. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. There is this powerful truth here about those that are in Christ. Someone who goes on in sin without repentance begins to call into question even the genuineness of maybe that profession of faith they made all those years ago. 
I've told you, it's, it always pains me when somebody wants me to confirm their salvation for them. It is impossible for me to confirm your salvation. I can ask what you're trusting in or who. I can say, what, what do you believe is the reasoning that you're acceptable to God? But I can't confirm anything in you. Only God knows your heart. Only God truly knows. Now, again, I'm not to go looking for trying to poke holes in everybody's profession and saying, oh, well, you, you know, you claim this, but you really, that's between you and God. But what we are to be doing is we should be examining the genuineness of our own profession of faith. Again, David and Peter, in some regard, both of their sins were very public. There's a big difference between public and private sin. And public sin is the sin that other people know about. Uh, There were others that knew about David's sin. There were people that long after uh, the sin, and again, in only the way God's providence could work, we know that Solomon was the child of David and Bathsheba. And we begin to think and examine, think how how could something that was a sinful relationship that David is, is broken by, Well, you know, they lost the one child, but then Solomon later is born. But see, we begin to understand that not every believer is going to fall into some great public sin. I think I mentioned this last week. You may not fall into a public scandal of your own walk. Oftentimes, public scandals of sin often remind us of just how depraved man can be. And there's nothing more horrible than that than to see a believer fall and publicly their sin be made public for everybody to see. And by the way, we ought never rejoice in anybody's public sin. This church doesn't take that stance. We would not rejoice in saying, see, I'm glad they got caught. I would say, what's the matter with us if we actually say that? Because there are sins in our life right now that if they were made public would be a scandal to you. It'll be a scandal to me. Oh, it's just my private sin. My sin doesn't affect anyone else. All sin affects someone else. There is no, this is just between me and God. My sin has consequences on everybody around me, even though I may not see it. Just because it's not called public doesn't mean that it's not really there. So uh, many believers may go their entire life without ever committing a public sin, But every believer should desire and make it a goal in their life through the power of the Spirit to live so that that type of sin never occurs. Great sins can only be forgiven by repentance. But also understand this, you don't have to have a long winding road of testimony of the horribleness of your sin to prove that you're a believer. I'm saddened by the reality that sometimes people are so expressive and so believing that I need to hear, not just me, but others need to hear their whole sordid story. And somehow that this is really, I need you to hear this. Look, we all have a story. And if one person's sin life 
was worse than ours, it should make us feel better about, hey, I never had anything like that. The reality is, is all sin condemns us. And apart from the grace of God, we have no hope. True repentance is repentance regardless of what the sin is. How big or how small, the only way back to God is through repentance. Let's just wrap this in a quick way of an application. So, if we do know that some believers will fall into these great sins, such as Peter, such as David, both were serious enough that we're reading about them today. Christ himself indicated that if anyone denies him before men, what did Peter do? He denied Christ before men. He would deny them before the Father. Matthew 10, 33. It would therefore by conclusion to seem that Peter had truly fallen away and was away from God. However, By the grace of God and the mercy of God, we see Peter being restored. The manner in which Peter was restored was through repentance alone. Not by doing a series of good works. Not by shaping up repentance. He shed tears over it. He was grieved by his sin, Luke 22, 62. He was restored by Christ himself, John 21, verses 15 through 18. This teaches us that believers experience restoration only through repentance. Listen, the only thing that can get us up in the morning is understanding what the grace of God really means, not just for our salvation, but having the grace of God, knowing that my loved one or even myself, if I fall into deep sin, there is a way back. But I should be doing everything I can to resist that sin. Not using God's way back as a reason for me to do what I choose to do. I'm going to pray and then we'll open it up for a few minutes of questions so we can be thinking about this. Father, we thank you for this time in your word this morning. And Lord, this is not an easy subject to speak about, to teach about. Because Lord, we know that we've all, at points in our life, We've known it. Sometimes we've allowed it. We've allowed sin to go unchecked in our life. And Father, I pray that even during this time of study, that we don't allow these lessons to become so academic that we miss the reality of what we're being taught. The conviction of sin that should rise up because of who we are and who you are. Lord, we praise you and thank you for the mercy and grace. Lord, the mercy that's been given to us, not as deserving recipients. And Lord, we still struggle to find even a single reason and struggle with understanding why, why, why would God even look my way? But Lord, may this lead us to a spirit of worship. May it lead us to a testimony of praise upon our lips, realizing what we've been saved from. And even in our depravity and even in our, after our conversion, that there is a way back. But it's through the same way in which we came unto you through repentance. 
Father, I pray that this doctrine of repentance would not be removed from churches around this world. I'm afraid it's quickly moving away to where repentance is no longer even taught as part of the Christian experience. But Lord, I pray that you would teach us and guide us through your spirit. Father, we love you and we thank you. And it's in Christ's name and for his sake I do pray. Amen. So let me present a question first and then we'll see if this sparks a couple questions today. And this might be a very open-ended question and it's intended, intended to be that way. How long does repentance last? How long does it last? Until you need it again? That's the only question I'm going to give you right now. How long does it last? And then we'll clarify, maybe. How long does it last? So we've had one response. Till we need it again. <laughs> okay. Okay, good. So we still we need it again. We should it should be quickly. We should re- repent quickly. You like these big general questions, don't you? So is there any any other is there any other principle about repentance that we can mention with regard to the time frame. Yeah. Well, if repentance is a gift from God, mm-hmm. then you would say that he would stop giving that gift of repentance if he said that it ended. Okay. Okay, that's a good observation as well. So he'd stop Skyline. Okay. So it's the so it really the answer to that is is it's repentance is truly something that's continued through the course of our entire lives. That's the, the simple answer. It's it's a continued thing for the course of our entire life. So it doesn't have an ending. It doesn't have a place where I no longer need 
repentance. And again, since it is the gift of God, in order for that to stop, then God would have to stop giving it. All right? That's good. All right, any, any questions from you folks now before we end? Skylar, go ahead. I always like those. <laughs> I love those kind of questions. Mm-hmm. So, what advice would you have on finding the line between not uh, keeping yourself from these snares and being hungry? Um, hmm. I think the only answer to that is, is I think there is the, we are given the indwelling spirit to warn us about those situations. And I think from a personal standpoint with people I've dealt with who've asked similar questions, we often fail to yield to the spirit's leadings and promptings in us. Now. Does that mean that there should be an intentionality about some things that we avoid without becoming where we say, you know, we're just better than you? There is some reality to separation from things. Now, I know that that, that's lost all popularity in churches today because of the whole idea of, hey, don't judge me. We talked about that last Wednesday. There is a biblical principle of separating yourself from certain things. Again, man has seemingly for years decided to make his own catalog of what he thinks we should separate from and who we should separate from. But there are biblical principles that we just, we should avoid them so that we're not put in that situation to where the temptation is going to be allowed to even begin to build up. Does that answer it? Because the way I'm taking it is a monk trying to get away from it altogether. How you divide, how you find the line, I don't think there's a, there's a magic line other than whatever scripture declares that you should separate yourself from. I mean, uh, not to get too personal, but in the past, I've separated myself from certain things and then it just creeps up somewhere else. (laughs) Yeah. It's the the adage that that used to be, okay, so, and we live in a different generation now, but everybody said, okay, the problem's the television, right? So I throw the TV out. And we've all seen, if you've ever seen this, I've seen these big elaborate productions done on church platforms where the preacher brings a bunch of TV, about a bunch of TV sets and a baseball bat. And he said, uh, this is the way you destroy this in your life. And he just walked down and he just, he just walloped all the TVs. And he said, that's the way, that's the way you remove sin out of your life. <laughs> you're, just, you're just taking away an avenue, right? You're just, now, there are people, if you truly have issues with these things, and there are people who cannot control themselves, and it's, it, we live in this, this technology age, and people look at you like, well, how can I live in this world without technology? If it's causing you to sin, how badly do you really need that? See, we'll choose. We'll choose whatever it is that we want. And again, is that going to solve the problem? You're absolutely right. No, it's going to creep up in some other, up some other way. You know, it used to be, before, you know, there was a whole generation that said, okay, you used to have to go to a, a movie house, for example. 
Okay, well, the movies are evil. Okay, so you don't go to the movies. So if you avoid the movies, then you don't have to worry about it. Theater before that, don't go to the theater. You can avoid that. Now it's TV, don't go. So the problem is, is that sin is going to creep up. It's, it's not just going to go away because you get rid of an object. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jesus said it's not the outward that defiles you. It's, it's, it, now, again, it doesn't mean you set wicked things before your eyes and say, this doesn't defile me. <laughs> right? But it's, it's it, what comes out of a man defiles him. So going back to that question, no, just separating from it's not going to solve the problem because it comes from the inside of us. Right? Does that help? Thank you. Oh, yeah. Um, like, my self-talk, I'm talking to myself, I, I'm always doing that. Yeah. For me, if I, it's hard to remember. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. If I get out of my own head and just yes. pray or, you know, read scripture about it, then it kind of diffuses things. Yes. Absolutely. I, I fully understand that. That and, that. and that does happen. And and then I would say that, you know, you're never you're never going to be wrong in being too conservative about it to where you go maybe you do go further than what somebody else might go but that that might be exactly what you need right Dan uh, I just when I think of when I think of fighting sin when I think that kind of going back to Scott's question how far do you go before you turn into a monk or what's the difference I mean you can take that a billion different ways but I in my mind, it kind of gets down to, and in my mind, the way I, I interact with it, it gets back to the perseverance of the saints. Yes. And yep. my goodness, if I'm living a life where I indulge in sin because I just enjoy it, it's like, wow, what? <laughs> There's no perseverance going on there. Right. Really. Am I even in the faith? Or am I even in the faith? Yep. Examine yourself, man. Yeah. And so, yep. I, I just, I, I think about perseverance of the saints. For, I mean, from God's perspective, we are. We're as secure as the day is long. Yes. And we're as secure as the Lord lives. And but man, from our perspective, sometimes it's just it, it's it's a gut wrenching fight. Yes. Oh yeah. And it feels like I'm holding on. <laughs> yeah. Like white knuckles and. Well, I think both of you are saying the same thing. It 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 really should be. This is supposed to be a fight we're putting up. It it should not be easy to resist sin. Like if your life is easy, where you're just—it's—it's isn't really hard to resist. It, it is. It's a fight. It's a fight for your life. And like I said, when we give this illustration, what would you do to protect your family or yourself? We—we we would say, I'll do anything to keep them safe. But what would you do to keep yourself from sin? And that's the question. That's really the question of it. And I think that's—that shows you the evidence of how I really feel about repentance. How I really feel about sin is how do I, not my own strength fight per se, but that's how badly I want to resist anything getting a foothold in my life, right? Okay.
Well, this is good. So two on that. We've got another. We've got more to cover next week. Um, so we'll go ahead and go into our time of fellowship. Uh, so you are dismissed. We'll be back at 1115 and uh, look forward to our um, time of worship this morning. All right. Thank you.